Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Hunter Biden's appearance on the steps of the Capitol, offering to testify in person to the Republican kangaroo court, who have been smearing him for years ahead of today's vote by House Republicans to begin an impeachment inquiry into President Biden based on no evidence but Speaker Johnson's craven obedience to Trump, who wants payback for his two impeachments. Joining us is Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, The Case for Impeachment, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. And he has a new weekly show at 9pm on Thursdays at Alan Lickman YouTube. Then we'll assess the need for a new word to replace hypocrisy, which hardly describes what is going on in Florida, where the Sarasota School Board voted to oust the co-founder of the anti-gay book burners Mums for Liberty, who engaged in a threesome with her husband and another woman who is charging her husband, the head of Florida's Republican Party, with rape. Joining us is Grant Stern, a Miami-based columnist and radio broadcaster who writes two national news columns, one at the Washington Press by Occupy Democrats and another on original investigative reporting at the Stern Facts. He's also a contributing investigative reporter for dcreport.org. Then finally, we'll look into what came out of the COP28 climate talks, which is a pledge to, quote, transition away from fossil fuels as opposed to phasing them out. Joining us is Michael Mann, the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability and Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He's received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Awards, Selection by the Scientific America as one of 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award for the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. He's the author of numerous books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And his latest book is Our Fragile Moment, how lessons from Earth's past can help us survive the climate crisis. And we will discuss his article at the Los Angeles Times, COP28 has become a shameless exercise in the fight against climate change, but can we afford to walk out? And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. 
On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Alan Lickman, who's a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, a surefire way of predicting the next president. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, The Case for Impeachment, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. And he has a new weekly show at 7 p.m. on Thursdays at Alan Lickman YouTube. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Lickman. Thank you. One quick correction. My son has moved to Los Angeles. He's the (laughs) co-host, so our show has moved to 9 p.m. to account for the time difference. Oh, okay. Well, I'm pretty familiar with that, I have to tell you. So what's happening then on Capitol Hill today, the embattled son of the president, Hunter Biden, made a pretty impassioned speech. At the same time, inside, the House Republicans are preparing to impeach his father based upon, as far as I can tell, no evidence, except for the general kind of you know, hit job that, and smear tactics they've used on Hunter Biden. Is there anything else there? Is there is there a there there? You know, as Gertrude Stein said of Los Angeles, my son's new home, there is no there there. This is totally fabricated, totally made up. They have absolutely nothing on Joe Biden. Whatever Hunter Biden may or may not have done has nothing to do with whether or not Joe Biden, under the Constitution, has plausibly committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Republicans have been looking into this for years. Uh, Bill Barr, his Justice Department, the great loyalist to Donald Trump, looked into this, and they found absolutely nothing. But Republicans don't care, just as they didn't care about Donald Trump's big lie that the election was stolen from him. The sole purpose of this is to muddy the waters and make people think, you know, Donald Trump isn't unique. Everyone is corrupt. You know, Joe Biden is just as bad as the twice impeached, indicted Donald Trump. And people shouldn't care about the blatant corruption and criminality of Donald Trump because they're all the same. So Hunter Biden said, and he was he was pretty effective, I thought, on the steps of the Capitol today, there is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. They have lied over and over about every aspect of my personal and professional life, so much so that their lies have become the false facts believed by too many people. And then he went on to talk about uh, how, quote, they displayed naked photos of me during an oversight hearing, and they have taken the light of my dad's love, the light of my dad's love for me, and presented it as darkness. They have no shame. So do you think he's going to win back some support, having lost a lot because of the the smear tactics that have been going on for years now? The problem is these smear tactics are effective. 
You know, I've written about this in my book, 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump, and six years ago in my 2017 book, The Case for Impeachment. It's the big lie uh, perpetrated by authoritarians throughout history. The notion behind the big lie is truth doesn't matter. If you say something long enough and loud enough, people will come to believe it. And very sadly, you know, the polls, if you believe them, show, you know, a big chunk of the American people now believe that Joe Biden did something wrong, despite not a shred of evidence that he has done so. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, Speaker Johnson. You know, he's kind of low key. He's soft-spoken, but in some ways, he is more of a danger to American democracy than Donald Trump. I know that's saying a lot, but my point is Donald Trump only cares about Donald Trump. He's totally transactional. Johnson is a true believer. He's a theocrat. And not only is he a true believer, he is a true believer in his own incredibly narrow, cramped, view of biblical truth. For him, the Bible is all about being against gay and lesbian people, being against abortion, being against contraception, being for untrammeled, unchecked- And global warming as well. Capitalism. And in fact, the Bible barely touches on any of those subjects. Uh, If you look at the teachings of Jesus, his big focus is the danger of wealth, the danger of greed, you know, it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. His emphasis is on telling the truth. All of that is forgotten in Ron Johnson's distorted view of the Bible and Jesus's teaching and the, even the Old Testament. And he wants to impose that uh, nefarious, false conception of religion on all of us. And that's really, really dangerous. But he's also a reliable and devoted lackey to Donald Trump. And isn't this impeachment all being directed by Donald Trump and obediently served up by Mike Johnson? Yes. I mean, right now, Johnson's and and Trump's allegiances align. Neither one of them cares about truth justice or the American way to talk about, you know, the old Superman introduction. Uh, They only care about power and controlling the rest of us. You know, if you look back at Johnson's former statements, he warned against a narrow partisan impeachment, which this one would be if it, it succeeds. He warned against using impeachment politically when there isn't clear evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. And now, for purely partisan and controlled purposes to advance Donald Trump, who is now the mainstream of the Republican Party, Johnson is willing to turn his back on his own once seemingly principled statements about impeachment. Well, at every opportunity uh, for the longest time, for the last few years, he hasn't. Mike Johnson hasn't had a particularly long political life. But at every opportunity, he would say that the founding fathers warned that a single party impeachment would be divisive. Now, he kept saying that over and over again without remembering that 
the impeachment of Bill Clinton was a single-party impeachment. And now he's about to do the very same thing with starting an inquiry into Biden based upon no evidence that will lead to an impeachment. So I don't. We, I think we need a new word for hypocrisy, don't we? Yeah, hypocrisy is too much of a well-worn-out word and really doesn't apply here because the contradictions, the saint, the shamelessness, really never before been seen in American politics. We've seen this in extremist authoritarian politics in other nations, but this is something absolutely new in American politics, where there is no concern whatsoever for consistency, no concern for the truth, where everything is subordinated for the, to the quest for power and for control. So where's the American public on this? We mentioned earlier that this constant drumbeat of trying to drum up scandal and associate it with Hunter Biden, who, you know, is not, his business dealings were pretty shady, but not necessarily criminal. And he's, he's obviously a mess. And he said such today on the steps of the Capitol that, you know, that I've had problems, to put it mildly. But, you know, you think that these so-called Christians would understand that and would have some compassion. I mean, haven't they heard of AA? And doesn't every family have somebody that's had problems with alcoholism or drugs? Of course. And, and you know, it? Jesus' teaching is uplifting the lowly having compassion for others, not empowering the powerful, the wealthy, and the greedy. It's exactly the opposite of that. And he teaches, you know, that there is room in all of us, in, in, in sinners, for redemption. And for all his flaws, Hunter Biden has really tried hard to achieve redemption. And these, you know, professed Christians should be helping him along, not using him and exploiting him for their own partisan political purposes. Plus, whatever difficulties Hunter Biden may have, we're not impeaching Hunter Biden. You've got to show the president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. You know, Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy Carter, was quite the miscreant, but that didn't make Jimmy Carter any less of a moral, upright individual, whatever you may think of his presidency, lots of presidents have had all kinds of problems with children and, 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 and siblings. But this is the first time, you know, we've seen a party so cynical and so unconcerned with, as you say, uh, compassion, redemption, that they're exploiting the struggles of a president's son for their naked partisan purposes of falsely throwing stones at the president, you know, let, as you know, the, the gospel says, let he who, you know, he is without sin, in glass houses, stone. not throw stones. Right. <laughs> so the, I guess the one thing that Hunter Biden's got going for him, and he's, he's also got tax charges against him now, uh, along with this, this gun charges, which of course, again, is an example of Republican hypocrisy, because uh, they would never charge, they, they don't even believe in the law in the first place, uh, that shouldn't be on the books. So, but the extent to which he's lucky, I guess, is that 
the people that are going after him are just so ridiculous and embarrassing, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's the one that displayed the compromising photos of Hunter Biden during a hearing in July. And then the two point people that are going after him is House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan and the House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, who is truly a dumbo. You know, I mean, he's up there in the pantheon of the really stupid MAGA people that Trump has brought into the into our politics, like Tommy Tuberville. And, of course, you've got Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who should never have been re-elected. The Democrats really blew it there with a terrible candidate. He was so beatable. It's just disgraceful um, that that guy's still in public office. And then, of course, you've got these other dumbos like uh, James Comer. So, I mean, maybe we are, have become an idiocracy. And it doesn't matter. But do you think anybody notices that these people are really ridiculous? Yeah, I think ultimately there is a fair chance that the truth will uh, win out in the end. And that these people that you talk about will be seen for the cynics and the exploiters that they are. You know, impeachment can really be a two-edged sword. Remember, Bill Clinton's approval rating increased when he was impeached back in the late 1990s because the American people didn't really believe that the impeachment was legitimate. They really believed, you know, that it was political. And so, you know, Republicans are treading on pretty dangerous grounds here. Plus, let's not forget, you know, with you know, another despicable figure, George Santos being booted out, Kevin McCarthy quitting, they're going to have a, a two-seat majority. So if they do, in, you know, have an impeachment vote, not just an impeachment inquiry vote, they're essentially going to need every single Republican. And it's going to be, you know, the narrowest of impeachment votes and the most partisan that we've ever seen. And I don't think that will sit well with the American people. This is a real test of the, not just of, you know, the political leadership, but of the American people. You know, are the American people, you know, going to be true to the ideals of this country and see this cynical political maneuver for what it is? So just in closing, though, since you've accurately predicted all of the presidential winners since 1984, including Donald Trump in 2016, how do you see, I know it's early, it's not even, we're not even in 2024, although it's coming up soon. My sense is that the Democrats are pretty likely to pick up the House, uh, but they may lose the Senate and the presidency is up for grabs. What's your, what's your reading? Yeah, I, I don't entirely disagree with that. Uh, I don't, as you point out, don't yet have a prediction based on my 13 key system because there's too much that's fluid. You know, we have two uncertain wars in the Middle East and in Ukraine. We don't know where the economy is going to land next year. But let me say this, for all the grousing about Joe Biden, he has achieved a greater record of domestic policy accomplishments than any American president since the 1960s. And it's not close, but somehow, the American people don't know that because of terrible messaging. Democrats need to up their messaging. Moreover, for all the grousing about Joe Biden, his running 
gives the Democrats by far the best chance to win. One of my 13 keys is incumbency. With Biden running, the Democrats win that. Internal White House party battle, with Biden running, the Democrats win that. That's two keys off the top, they win. And under my system, it would take six negative keys to predict their defeat. So with Biden running, they'd have to lose six out of the remaining 11 keys. Biden doesn't run, they lose both those keys, and they only need four out of the remaining 11 keys to be predicted losers. So stop grousing, stop fixating on polls, which are utterly meaningless this far out from the election, even closer. I remind everybody that in May of the election year of 1988, George H.W. Bush trailed his Democratic challenger, Mike Dukakis, by 18 points. That's just a few months before the election. And Bush won handily, nearly a 25-point turnaround in just a few months. Well, I guess he's uh, Biden's lucky that he's running against Trump because I think, you know, a Nikki Haley would be more formidable. I mean, Trump should be so beatable, but yet he's got so much support. I, I just don't get it. Well, here's the thing. Trump is unique in all of American history. Look at eight years since he popped into presidential politics in 2015. His approval rating hasn't budged much. It's pretty much hovering in the 40% range, a little higher, a little lower. And it doesn't matter what he does, it doesn't change. However, why do you think Trump is so desperate to delay the trials? Because if any of these cases get to trial, I believe he's overwhelmingly likely to get convicted. And if he is not just an indicted felon, but a convicted felon, then who knows how that could shake up everything. Well, Alan Lickman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Take care, Ian. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Alan Lickman, who's a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, a surefire way to predicting the next president. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election when, against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, The Case for Impeachment, and 13 Cracks, Preparing American Democracy After Trump. And he has a new weekly radio show at 9 p.m. on Thursdays at Alan Lick YouTube. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the need for a new word to replace hypocrisy, which hardly describes what is going on in Florida.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Grant Stern, a Miami-based columnist and radio broadcaster who writes two national news columns, one for the Washington Press by Occupy Democrats and one focused on original investigative reporting at the Stern Facts. He's also a contributing investigative reporter for dcreport.org. Welcome to Background Briefing, Grant Stern. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, I noticed the story on the front page of the BBC today. Um, Bridget Ziegler, Florida school board, pushes member to resign amid sexual assault scandal. And there's a picture of Bridget uh, Ziegler, who is the wife of the head of the Republican Party in Florida, who Governor DeSantis has urged to quit over sexual assault charges. She's actually, from the photo, she's a pretty attractive woman. So she was involved in a threesome, I believe, with her husband and an unnamed woman who has brought this assault charge against uh, Ziegler. Is that right? Uh, That is absolutely correct. She has not made any friends on her local school board, which was the springboard for her career into state and later national politics. Uh, Referring to, of course, the fact that she's a co-founder of Mums for Liberty, the the religiously based book-burning organization that went after gays in particular, stripping anything from the bookshelves referring to gay and lesbian relations. That's correct, but actually it, it goes back a little further than that even. Um, in her role as the co-founder of Moms for Liberty, she helped write uh, the text that became Florida's uh, Parental Rights and Education Bill, which is mostly known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Uh, so there's a tremendous irony uh, to the entire circumstance of her and her husband having a, a three-way relationship with another woman. And then, of course, her husband was accused of rape, which the police haven't been investigating, and a copy of the search warrant was released uh, a little over a week ago. I posted uh, the search warrant and the relevant excerpts in a thread on Twitter, or whatever they call it now, X, and uh, you know, got over a million views on the lead post. And it basically showed that, uh, you know, like all of the intimate details, literally, of this relationship and how Florida's Republican Party chair came to allegedly sexually assault his longtime friend who was participating in a thruple with him. Well, without going completely tabloid, Grant, (laughs) what I understand was that they were supposed to have a threesome, you know, something that apparently they'd they'd been doing for some time. But then the the woman canceled because Bridget wasn't showing up. Uh, and then he got mad, and he went to her apartment, and then that's when the rape allegation uh, comes in. So that's the sequence of events, right? Right. That is the sequence of events. And the the text of the search warrants actually you know, showed that the police had already seen a copy of the surveillance video of Christian Ziegler entering the complex and departing approximately 38 minutes later. Um, and then when they spoke to Ziegler, he indicated that he had taken a recording of the encounter and that he had deleted it from his telephone, but he had uploaded it 
to the Google Cloud on Google Drive. And so the search warrant was to obtain the video from Google. And the most recent reporting is that, yes, uh, the video was obtained by police who are investigating this in Sarasota, Florida. Um, I believe the the investigator's name is uh, Sar- uh, Lieutenant or Detective a- uh, Andrea Cox. Angela Cox, excuse me. So but, it's but, really but, like come a long way from a sh- small investigation into something that's growing rather mature. Right, but <laughs> you mean this guy, the head of the Republican Party in Florida, he he's mad at this woman because she canceled on a threesome uh, with his wife. He goes to her apartment. I don't know whether he breaks in or not, but at any rate, the long and the short of it is you just told us that he videotaped the encounter. encounter? Is that right? That's pretty right. weird. Yeah, he videotaped the encounter. Let's say not mad, but more like uh, undeterred by being told, don't come over. Oh, I see. Right. He was told, do not come over, and then, you know, proceeded to, to go there anyway. And yeah, he uh, he recorded the whole encounter, um, according to reliable sources that's in the hands of police uh, at this time. Um, the Florida Trident has and Bob Norman have been at the leading edge of exposing this uh, just earth-shaking political story. And... What's ironic here is that Ron DeSantis, Florida's governor, actually possesses the power to remove Bridget Ziegler from her position, but hasn't done it. Conversely, he does not possess the power to remove the Florida Republican Party chair, being that he's the governor, although he's the titular head of the Florida Republican Party by virtue of being the Florida governor. And DeSantis has called for Christian Ziegler, the husband, to resign. And he's refused. And adding another little layer of subtext to this is that uh, Mr. Ziegler is a Trump supporter right now. So what does Mr. Ziegler expect to happen here? The evidence seems to be piling up against him, right? What's his reason for staying on? Does he have an excuse? I mean, his excuse is that he's going to barricade himself inside the office he was uh, reportedly looking at all the options for removal, like like having the party explain all those options so he could use them to fight. He refused to even call a meeting to discuss the situation. And so the co-chair, uh, a gentleman by the name of Evan Powers, decided to call a Republican Party meeting for December 17th, uh, this upcoming weekend, without the chair. Um, so it's it's a real mess for the Florida Republicans who have been quite the well-oiled political machine in this state for many decades, including a massive dark money machine that they use to elect candidates from the bottom to the top of the ticket. But my understanding is that Ziegler and his wife were close friends of DeSantis' prior to this, right? So there's a personal element in it. Oh, yes, absolutely. There's, there's a very close personal element to this, and... Anybody who knows about Ron DeSantis or knows Ron DeSantis knows that Casey DeSantis is the true power behind the throne. She's the thinker. I've seen Casey speak um, actually to a Club 45 meeting uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida. And I can tell you that she is fluid 
on her feet in a way that Rhonda Santis never is when he's discussing things. You know, she's she's really a fast thinker. Ron is all about preparing and and regurgitating. So what's her relationship with Bridget Ziegler then, Casey DeSantis? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or, or with the, the husband. I mean, is she the one that's telling telling Ron DeSantis to fire the guy? Uh, you know, perhaps. I mean, I think Ron can think enough for himself to realize that having a party chair who's allegedly a rapist is a problem. <laughs> um, but it's pretty ironic considering that Republicans are ready to, you know, elect a president who's already been uh, found liable by a jury to be a, a sexual uh, predator. So it's a weird party, eh? Well, it is. Uh, I guess the, the good news on a national stage is that DeSantis is becoming, he's just fading into the background. He's put all his eggs in the one basket of, of winning in uh, Iowa. And it does, it, there's no way, is it? I mean, Trump's about 40 points ahead. If you want to look at a good parallel, uh, George W. Bush looked almost unstoppable after his election by a very thin margin. And then within a few months became a lame duck. And Ron DeSantis has accomplished almost the same thing just with a little bit later by starting his run for president late and using his official powers to pass a radical agenda that Floridians have never seen in this state. Um, that's just snowplows civil rights for almost every single Floridian. Um, and so, yeah, he overreached wildly and then walked into a buzzsaw when he had to face Donald Trump after months of not uh, defending himself in the political arena. And now, now Ron DeSantis' career is in tatters and he's a lame duck. Well, but he's done a lot of damage, as you've just pointed out, right? And can that be undone, the damage? I mean, is there the Democratic Party? And if you think the Republicans are in disarray in Florida, the Democrats don't seem to be in particularly good shape either. Well, the Democrats definitely have their own problems as a party. And I would say that a lot of them are structural, which are the most difficult kind to solve. But they do have a recent uh, statewide elected candidate leading the fight, Nikki Freed. And she's extremely smart, incredibly dedicated, highly motivated. And uh, she's never been alleged to have done anything actually illegal, which is a big plus. But I don't think she ever will be. She's, she's a lawyer. Um, she's a really remarkable person. So they've got, you know, the building blocks, at least at the top of the party, whereas Republicans have a quagmire that starts at the top and, I mean, it's not going to be solved anytime soon. So just in closing, if DeSantis is on the way out and maybe Nikki Frigg could get elected, what about the Senate there? That's pretty dismal, isn't it? With Rubio and that mega crook who used to be the governor. Well, Rick Scott uh, is known for plowing a ton of his own money into these elections. But Debbie McCarcel Powell is a former uh, House of Representatives member. She's based in Miami. She's Latina. She's been elected. She's been in Congress. She's no, she knows D.C. She was an administrator at Florida International University. And she's got the full backing of the Democratic Senate uh, committee. Uh, so there's a real chance that she could prevail in election uh, in 2024 Rick Scott only won his seat by about 10,000 votes in 2018, 
And those most of those votes were undervotes by a ballot mistake in Congressional t- District 24, where I actually happened to live at the time, uh, where the ballot was printed wrongly in a second county, and there was a massive amount of undervotes in the most Democratic district in the country. So anything can happen. It's Florida. It's <laughs> anything to happen. Butterfly ballot <laughs> place. So, but... Uh, just in closing, though, Scott, when you say he's he's got a lot of money to spend on the campaign, that's money that that's blood money from ripping off Medicare, right? He got the biggest fine in history, right? One point eight billion dollars for, for stealing from Medicare, and somehow the guy's not in jail, and he's Very instead Florida. he's a U.S. senator, and he's only the second of three from Florida. So go figure. Wow. I thank you for joining us here today, Grant. Thanks for having me in, and have a really great day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Grant Stern, a Miami-based columnist and radio broadcaster who writes two national news columns, one at the Washington Press by Occupy Democrats and one focused on original investigative reporting at the Stern Facts. And he's also a contributing investigative reporter for dcreport.org. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into what came out of the COP28 climate talks which is a pledge to, to, quote, transition away from fossil fuels as opposed to phasing them out. And joining us now is Michael Mann, the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the co-author with Susan Joy Hassel of the new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Mann. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And your opinion piece in the Los Angeles Times, COP28, has become a shameless exercise in the fight against climate change. But can we afford to walk out? I guess encapsulates the the compromise, right? That they were going to transition away from fossil fuels. And that seems to leave a lot of wiggle room. How does it strike you? Yeah, to me, it's like, um, you know, being diagnosed with diabetes and telling your doctor that you will transition away from donuts. That's not (laughs) adequate. You need to stop doing it as soon as possible. There needed to be language committing to a phase out of fossil fuels on a very specific time frame, because the science is unforgiving on this. We need to reduce carbon emissions 50 percent by 2030 and bring them down to zero by 2050 to avert a catastrophic three-degree Fahrenheit warming of the planet. The window of opportunity to to do that, to agree to emissions reductions that can keep us below that danger level, that window is closing. This was one of the last opportunities to actually agree to policies that would accomplish that. And and, and so it's a missed opportunity, and it means that that window of uh, opportunity is shrinking. And it soon will be gone. And soon will disappear. But was it a foregone conclusion having 
the head of the Petro State, the United Arab Emirates, who's the actual head of the national oil company, Sultan Al-Jabir, uh, presiding as the COP28 president. And prior to the summit itself in Dubai, there was le- a leak of uh, information about what his real attitude was, which to make a bunch yeah. of oil deals with, the, with all the delegates. Yeah. And there were more fossil fuel delegates there, as far as I know, than environmentalists and scientists and native peoples whose yeah. countries are being, some of them in the Pacific, are literally disappearing under the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there have been complaints for years that we've been moving in that direction. I think we've finally hit a breaking point here where the the meeting became so compromised that it was a foregone conclusion, as you say, that we were not going to achieve meaningful progress. You've got Saudi Arabia, you've got OPEC um, saying that there's no way they're going to agree to language to phase out fossil fuels. Uh, what, what Susan and I argue in our op-ed is, you know, the rules are broken. Um, we need new rules. Uh, for example, it, we can't allow one country like Saudi Arabia, one bad actor, to scuttle the entire agreement. Uh, there should be something like a requirement of a supermajority, 75% of uh, contributing countries. And there should be real penalties for those countries that do not engage in good faith. Um, right now, the implementation or rather the uh, enforcement mechanism is what's known as name and shame. You know, you call out the bad actors and, and hope that that will somehow sort of encourage them to to work harder towards meaningful, uh, meaningful agreement. Um, name and shame doesn't work when the parties have no shame and Saudi Arabia clearly doesn't. But Saudi Arabia, of course, with OPEC Plus, has an alliance with Russia. Yeah. And Putin, who has been largely ostracized by the international community, except in the global south, uh, he uh, recently had a um, state visit to the UAE, the very site where, of course, uh, COP28 took yeah. place, and was was faded. You know, they yeah. laid out the red carpet. They did everything imaginable. They had flags all over the place. And in, yep. in contrast to the German foreign minister who literally landed there and was alone on the tarmac. So yep. what can you do, though, with a, with a country like Russia, uh, which yep. is a petro-state that essentially yep. has no other, apart from selling armaments, has no other That's form true. of revenue? How are you going to get them to deal with reality of climate change? And they have the worst leakage of methane in Siberia on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, birds of a feather, right? Uh, That's what we're seeing. These authoritarian states, um, invariably mostly petro-states that have banded together, that have formed this alliance to block meaningful progress. And Russia for years has been engaging in, you know, um, in propaganda campaigns, um, uh, social media, using bot armies to sort of, um, you know, promote climate denial and delay um, to create division, to do everything they can to, you know, prevent any any movement towards meaningful climate action. Because as you say, that is their primary asset, Um, the the, the fossil fuels buried under their ground. And um, Putin, unfortunately, you know, is a despot. He's, uh, you know, an authoritarian. Um, he has, you know, committed uh, atrocities, um, uh, crimes of humanity against Ukrainians. Um, the fact that somebody like him remains in power is very deeply 
problematic. Um, what can we do about it? Of course, we have to you know, instill the strongest sanctions possible here in the United States. It's very important that our Congress um, vote to continue to provide uh, you know, funding to Ukraine so that they can defend themselves because this is sort of this battle, you know, this attack on Ukraine by by Putin really reflects the policies of a petro state that's doing everything it can to maintain power and to continue to, you know, extract and, and sell fossil fuels um, to the rest of the world. And in many ways, even though Russia hasn't explicitly played um, a dominant role in these latest proceedings, they are clearly collaborating with other bad actors, um, not the least of which is Saudi Arabia, to block climate action. But what about here at home, Michael Mann? You've got uh, Donald Trump, of course, who's a climate change denier, the leader yep. of the Republican Party, and in many polls is ahead of Biden for the 2024 election. And his hand-picked, you know, toady is now the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who comes yep. from... Not yep. a from a petro state, Louisiana, right. represents that constituency. Uh, yep. He's also a climate change denier, yep. uh, and he ties it into his Christian nationalism. You know right. that, yep. the, that the, the Earth is only five thousand years old. So, what do we do about that? I mean, yep. what I thought that I mean, you've written books about this, the climate wars. Uh, yep. I thought they were over, but but no, this guy's come back. It's like you know, Noah's Ark down there in... Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the premise of uh, the, the New Climate War, which was uh, um, not my most recent book, but my second most recent book, was really about the shifting tactics, right? Because denial is, is difficult um, at this point. Um, even, you know, the worst offenders uh, find it hard to deny that climate change is happening because people can see it's happening, people can feel the... they're experiencing the impacts. And so... They've shifted to other tactics, but make no mistake, um, those tactics still are aimed at preventing any meaningful progress in moving away from fossil fuels uh, and moving toward renewable energy. Um, and, you know, we don't think of ourselves in the United States as a petrostate. We are what I would call a conditional petrostate. And what I mean by that is when there is Republican control of our government, we are a petrostate because the Republican Party is a fully owned um, subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry. And so uh, the United States under Trump is a petrostate um, and would be, again, if, um, you know, uh, if, if, if he were to be reelected, um, it would be devastating when it comes to U.S. leadership on climate, and without U.S. leadership on climate, there will be no meaningful global progress. The United States needs to lead. And so those are the stakes of this next election. Um, it is not an overstatement to say that the fate of the planet lies in the balance of this next American election. But the fact that we're the world's largest producer of oil and gas, right, that doesn't make us a petrostate? It, it, it's an interesting question. You know, they're right now, the Biden administration is in a bit of a bind. Um, they, have, of course, committed themselves to, to meaningful action. I mean, he did shepherd through the Inflation Reduction Act um, and signed it into law. And it's the strongest climate legislation that we've ever passed. So that's a feather in his cap. At the same time, 
faced with inflation, faced with um, increased demand for energy, um, as we continue to sort of rebound still from uh, the pandemic, and the the glut of natural gas uh, because of um, you know the embargo against uh, Russia's uh, natural gas over their uh, their um, war against Ukraine, we're sort of in a bind um, that has forced the president, for political reasons, to sort of, um, you know, to encourage uh, at least a short-term increase in uh, energy production. We really, so we need to sort of distinguish between the sort of what's happening in the immediate term, which is really a consequence of a political perfect storm, and the policies that are being put in place um, that if implemented will move us away from fossil fuels um, in the longer term. So it's complicated. Um, our, you know, those of us who, uh, you know, who, who have tried to communicate the urgency of climate action, disappointed that, you know, the, the Biden administration has sort of given into the, the pressure um, and, and, and increased, uh, you know, fossil fuel production in the near term. Sure. Um, are we, Disappointed that he's approved certain new uh, pipelines. Um, yes, like Willow, and uh, in, you know, in some cases, you know, the president' power is limited. The Supreme Court has said he's overstepped his bounds. We've got a conservative, uh, you know, Supreme Court right now loaded with Trump uh, appointees, um, and um, that makes it difficult for the president to do very much through executive actions because of, you know, the danger and the worry that the courts will just overturn whatever he tries to do. And we've, we've seen that happen. So that's the bind that we're in. And how do we get out of that? We, we get out of that by turning out in mass um, in elections and voting for climate champions, and voting out climate deniers. Um, and in the environment that exists today, it really comes down to one party. There's one party that you know, supports climate action, the Democratic Party, um, and another that is doing everything it can, the Republican Party, to block it. So given um, the dire nature of this challenge as the clock ticks on whether we go past the point of no return, because unfortunately with global warming there is this reinforcement loop we mentioned earlier that Siberia is one of the worst places on the planet where methane is spewing into the atmosphere and as the tundra warms up and melts uh, then enormous amounts of methane are, are released and there are many other examples we don't need to get into but that's the nature of the challenge can you in the last couple of minutes michael give us some sense that there's progress being made one of the statistics i heard recently which is somewhat encouraging is that there are more electric bikes now than there are electric cars. And that's a sort of a, a somewhat under the radar. But, I mean, here out in, in Southern California with lots of sunlight and sun, lots of sunshine, uh, there's no excuse why Los Angeles couldn't be become the new, new Amsterdam. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is, um, you know, if you look at the worst-case scenarios, uh, we, you know, certainly look at devastating consequences of business as usual, fossil fuel burning and warming, no question about it. Um, there is some good news. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about it before. You know, the science does tell us now that the warming stops as soon as carbon emissions come to zero. And that's something we didn't really know for for, for certain um, even 10 years ago. But the 
sort of the state-of-the-art models uh, that we run today that are far more comprehensive and account, for example, uh, for the role of the ocean in absorbing carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, they, they tell us that, you know, there is this immediate um, and direct consequence of our efforts to, to reduce carbon emissions. So that's good news. Um, our actions make an immediate difference. The other good news is that we have made some progress. Um, you know, even COP26, the commitments from COP26 alone are enough to keep warming below uh, uh, two degrees Celsius um, if they are kept. Right? Those are promises made. They're not yet promises kept. There's an implementation gap, which is the gap between what countries say they're committed to and what the decisions they're actually making when it comes to, for example, additional um, oil exploration. That's a reason for concern as well. Um, in, my, in my latest book, Our, Our Fragile Moment, uh, I talk quite a bit about the lessons from the past um, that inform our understanding of you know, the climate crisis that we face today. And I actually look at the issue of methane because a lot of people worry about, you know, as you said, the possibility of this, you know, we call it a positive feedback. It's a vicious cycle. You warm up the permafrost um, um, that causes the release of methane that had been frozen in the Arctic permafrost. It's released into the atmosphere. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas itself, and that causes more warming. Um, as best we can discern um, from past episodes of warming and from what the data tell us today, we are unlikely to see any substantial release of methane, any sort of methane bomb, as it's sometimes called, uh, if we keep warming below two, three uh, degrees Celsius, um, even probably four. Now, that's still way too much warming and it would have devastating consequences. But it's unlikely that one of those consequences would be a runaway warming. Um, we don't see that in the past um, when similar uh, episodes of warming occurred for natural reasons. We don't think that we're due for anything like that in any scenario of, um, you know, of, of even, you know, moderate climate action, even current policies, if they are maintained, because we have, we are already sort of turning the corner. We are moving towards renewable energy, moving away from fossil fuels. So current policies alone will likely keep us below any sort of warming level that would trigger those sorts of um, dramatic uh, feedback. That having been said, there are other tipping points that we do worry about that could occur with um, even another one degree of warming. Uh, the destabilization of the Greenland ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet, um, enough you know, um, ice melt to give us not feet, but even meters of, of sea level rise, which, as you say, would be a threat to uh, both coastlines of the United States and low-lying regions around the world. Um, the extreme weather events that we're seeing already, devastating weather extremes, that will get that much worse. Um, as my good friend Steve Schneider, who's no longer with us, used to say, you know, the truth is bad enough. We don't have to exaggerate um, the impacts, um, uh, just the, the, what the science tells us with confidence is reason enough for a dramatic move away from fossil fuels and certainly far more dramatic and urgent than what was agreed to at COP28. Well, Mark Oman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you. Uh, always a pleasure, Ian. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Mark Oman, who's Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and Media at the University of Pennsylvania. 
He is the co-author with Susan Joy Hassel of the new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.